Amen. Children may be dismissed to junior church at this time, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, or a Bible uh, in your pews in front of you, or on your smart devices, Acts chapter 2. I want to, Ken, put that last two slides of that song back up there, if you would, for me. Uh, These are songs um, that are just so worshipful, and part of the reason they're so worshipful is they are so doctrinal. They're so deep in theology and content. They're so deep in truth. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. You think about that? We're a very Bible-believing church, evangelism-motivated church. We'd say that, though I told one of our previous leaders, we're evangelical, but not really, because I don't know how often we're really talking about the gospel with and how often it really hits us to think about the reality of life without Christ versus life with Christ versus our everlasting hope in Jesus versus everlasting damnation without Jesus and how often we really care about the lost. And I don't know how often we really think about how deadly our sin is. We don't think about how deadly our sin is. We're not going to think of how great the cross is. We're not going to think about how awesome the power of the cross is, how awesome it is that, that Jesus went to the cross for us. He took our place on that cross. What would have been everlasting damnation for us, Jesus was able to take because he's fully God and fully man. And so he could take the wrath of God. So that right now, even the most conservative Bible-believing churches don't want to hear talk about sin. We don't want to hear talk about sin, then we're not going to want to hear At least it's not going to hit us. We want to hear talk about grace. But grace isn't going to really hit us if we don't understand the reality of our sin, which is more deadly and dangerous than any virus known to man or any infection or any cancer or any any other disease. A few years ago, I was talking with someone from the church And because of sicknesses and illnesses going around, her doctor said she shouldn't go to church. She needs to stay home. And I'm not going to argue with the doctor's advice, nor did I, but it kind of hit me how it's okay for a doctor to say that, but it'd probably be inappropriate for the pastor to say, I'm your pastor and you need to be with the people of God. Loneliness is an epidemic right now. I don't know if you've heard that. And loneliness is real. Depression is on the rise. Anxiety is on the rise and all that. And we need each other. Today we're going to get into Acts 2, 42 through 47 and fellowship, biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is so important. I wish I, wish I could bring in a portable fire and, and put it like in front up here. I won't do that because... 
The church could burn down like a little bonfire pit, or it'd be smoky, and even bonfires sometimes give me migraines. So, so I'm not going to do that, but, but there's an illustration where if I could get this great fire going, this great bonfire going in the front, and you could see, and I could take one ember, you know, and move it away from the rest of the fire from now to the end of the sermon. By the end of the sermon, you all know that ember would not be glowing anymore. It wouldn't burn because it'd be isolated, be alone, The embers, the fire only burns when it's together with the rest of the wood and with the rest of the coal and with the rest of the embers. It doesn't burn alone. And it's hard for us to burn for Jesus alone. Today we're going to look at a summary passage of the early church. What are things the world would call fellowship? Shout some out where you're at. Going to the bar, okay, going to the bar. The world would call going to the bar fellowship. And most of the time, they're not judged there. They can, you know, be who they want to be. They can be free, and they would call that fellowship. What are some other things the world would call fellowship? Shout some others. Football game. It's Super Bowl Sunday, right? I mean, it's almost becoming a national holiday. You got Super Bowl Sunday and the Super Bowl tonight and hanging out together for the Super Bowl or for other football games. What are some other things the world might call fellowship? The gym. And who said bingo? Did somebody say bingo? Bingo. Go into the gym. We'd call that fellowship, right? Um, you're, you said it, but it's right. Bobby said all the old men at McDonald's in the morning. I was a McDonald's shift manager, and they all came in like clockwork. 6 a.m., they were there. Another group about 8.30 a.m., and they fellowshiped together. They supported. They were a great, great, great group, too, a great bunch as well. What are some other, any other ideas? Uh, fellowship. Being part of the team, baseball. Baseball, being part of a team. You know, um, my last church, God used me in the life of someone who works at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He grew as a strong disciple of Christ and still is. And he said, when he talks to the Hall of Famers, those in the NFL Hall of Fame, what they miss most is not playing the game, it's a locker room. It's how they support one another. There's a new a series on Apple TV based on World War II. It's called something. I can look it up later. It's, if, if you know the show, The Pacific, and the show that came out, Band of Brothers, this is made by Steven Spielberg, and it's kind of in line with that. This is about uh, bombers flying over World War II, uh, flying over Europe in World War II, and it's tracing them and following them. And you see all the camaraderie and all of them together. And I wonder if, you know, the, the men, I'm commenting to Megan, at least the way they depict it. I've never been in the military. But I'm guessing the men in the military, they really support one another with great camaraderie, great support. Fellowship, fellowship. You know, then there are some things that might be purely Christian fellowship. Like we can fellowship together in youth group, communion, baptisms, <coughs> I'm sorry, excuse me, church dinners. What else? What are some other things that might be purely Christian fellowship? Name a few. Sunday school, right? Marriage, Marriage is Christian fellowship. That's very much true. Marriage is Christian fellowship. Men's breakfast, celebrate recovery has fellowship, Bible school, vacation Bible school, and many other things. It's coming up quicker than we know. As we think of things, we might think of things that break up fellowship, cliques, gossip, secrets, racism, a lack of community. You know, C.S. Lewis commented 
once that someday you might be old enough to read children's stories again. So I want to draw right now from a children's story just for a moment. I'm going to try to summarize parts because I didn't prepare this till last night. But it's, uh, I've read all the books with my kids, some twice, some even three times, the Little House books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And in Little House in the Big Woods, there's a, point, there's a part where they make syrup. They're making syrup. And she's this little girl in the Big Woods back in the 1870s commenting on going over to grandma's house as they're done making syrup and they're just having this party. And she comments on a certain page of her uncle George, who was a Civil War veteran, blowing the horn. And then Pa took his fiddle out of his box and began to play. And all the couples stood in squares in the floor and they began to dance when Pa called the figures. And I'm going to read a little bit of this because it seems just like you know, a great picture of a great family gathering, a fellowship, and the church is a family, right? And, and she writes, Grand right and left, Pa called out, and all the skirts began to swirl, and all the boots began to stamp. The circles went round and round, all the skirts going one way, and all the boots going the other way, and hands clasping and parting high up in the air. Swing your partner, Pa called, and each gent bowed to the lady on the left. They all did as Pa said. Laura watched Ma's skirt swaying and her little waist bending and her dark head bowing. And she thought Ma was the loveliest dancer in the world. The fiddle was singing. Oh, you buffalo gals, aren't you coming out tonight? Aren't you coming out tonight? Aren't you coming out tonight? Oh, you buffalo gals, aren't you coming out tonight to dance by the light of the moon? I know that from It's a Wonderful Life. Anyway, she continues. The little circles and the big circles went round and round. And the skirts swirled and the boots stamped and the partners bowed and separated and met and bowed again. In the kitchen, Grandma was all by herself, stirring and boiling syrup in the big brass kettle. She stirred in time to the music. By the back door was a pail of clean snow. And sometimes Grandma took a spoonful of syrup from the kettle and poured it on some of the snow in a saucer. Laura watched the dancers again. Pa was playing the Irish washerwoman now. He called, Dosey, ladies, Dosey, doe, come down heavy on your heel and toe. Laura could not keep her feet still. Uncle George looked at her and laughed. Then he caught her by the hand and he did a little dance with her in the corner. She liked Uncle George. Everybody was laughing over by the kitchen door. They were dragging Grandma in from the kitchen. Grandma's dress was beautiful too, a dark blue calico with autumn-colored leaves scattered over it. Her cheeks were pink from laughing, and she was shaking her head. The wooden spoon was in her hand. I can't leave the syrup, she said. But Pa began to play the Arkansas Traveler, and everybody began to clap in time to the music. So Grandma bowed to them all and did a few steps by herself. She could dance as prettily as any of them. The clapping almost drowned by the music of Pa's fiddle. She goes on to describe this picturesque scene of being a child where they're all dancing and making syrup. And then they begin to eat what the, you know, this, this, this maple candy that they were making and having breakfast together and things like that. And we think of that as a perfect picture of fellowship. We also see a perfect picture of fellowship in Acts 2, 42 through 47, a perfect picture of the body of Christ coming together. What I just described in just a little bit of it right there is the perfect picture of a family coming together, a family with grandchildren and nieces and nephews and cousins, and they're coming together in this perfect picture of, you know, this, this pioneer family back then. And right here in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we see this perfect picture of the Christian family coming together, fellowshipping with one another. So let's read it. Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling possessions and belongings and, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So right here, we see, <clears throat> excuse me, something's just bothering my throat. Right here, we see the church coming together. Now, what has, what has happened? We got to put this in context. For the past two Sundays, we've talked about Pentecost. Pentecost was a, a Jewish holy day. Pentecost, having to do with Pentecost, which means 50, okay? The 50th day after Passover was this great Jewish holy day. And that's what, that's what they were celebrating, this Jewish holy day, and the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, the Holy Spirit came upon the church with, they saw tongues like fire come upon the people, and they spoke in languages they, they'd never known. And the way they could do that is the Holy Spirit gave them that ability. And they heard this mighty rushing wind. I described it like, like a tornado-type wind when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And some 3,000 people were saved. So now, this is after that event. Now some 3,000 people are saved. In a matter of a day, the church was born. And when the church was born, this small group of believers, which might have been 120, it was more than the disciples, it might have been 120 or 130 or so, but they grew to like 3,000 people because the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And now we have this scene of the New Testament gathering. Now we have this scene of their fellowship. And their fellowship included breaking bread with one another, which right here is most likely uh, communion, but it seems like they're eating together too. Their fellowship included discipleship. They're studying the apostles' teaching. Their fellowship included worship, adoring God. Their fellowship included self-sacrificial ministry, serving one another. And the fellowship included evangelism. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And even though the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is all Pentecost, Pentecost day, and wasn't necessarily a Sunday, but Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. This end of Acts chapter 2 is likely a summary passage of the first few years of the early church. As an early church, they were disciples of Christ, and this convicted them to worship, ministry, and evangelism. And this all happened in fellowship. We see discipleship specifically mentioned in Acts 2.42. But I think it really had to do with the way they lived. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoting themselves to the teaching, these early teachings of the church, the gospel, the word of God. This word actually means continually devoted. It wasn't a one-time thing. They were continuously devoted to the apostles' teaching. In the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Think about it. Continuously, continually devoted. James 4.4 4 says that friendship with the world makes us enemies with God. There is a contradiction, a dichotomy between the world's ways and God's ways. It's always been that way. It's nothing new. And the world pushes and prods and tempts us but the early church faithfully endured in a world that was incredibly 
hostile to the early Christian message, way more than today's culture. People in the church struggle with health and other needs. So how can we do that? How can we stay continually devoted to the Bible, to the biblical worldview, to the biblical ways? How can we live the Christian life? What is key is the fellowship of believers. What is key is the fellowship of believers. We're gonna come back to that. They were continuously devoted to the apostles' teaching. What would the apostles' teaching be? I think of the teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven. The greatest commandment, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Love God and love people. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. They asked later, who is my neighbor? Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan. Your enemy is your neighbor. Everyone's your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. An open application is a simple question. How are we doing as a disciple of Christ? How is this working corporately in fellowship? And self-sacrifice. Look at verse 43, Acts 2, 43. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is worship. They had the fellowship. They were staying close to the apostles' teaching. And, and now this is worship. Awe. Awesomeness, the adoration came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Worship is an individual spiritual discipline, but worship is also a corporate spiritual discipline. Worship is adoring God. It goes both ways. It's with the body of Christ, and it's also in our own life. Are we ever at times throughout the week where we're just amazed by God and we just spontaneously worship him? Are we so caught in rigid discipline that it's just formulaic? It's not spontaneous worship. Do we ever look at things and see how amazing God's creation is and just spontaneously worship? Or notice something that happens through the day and think, ah, God set that up. Let's worship him. Let's give him praise. Let's give him glory. Let's worship him. And then, and then we do that as a community. We do that every Tuesday night at Celebrate Recovery. Hopefully we do that at other times in the week too. In a worship service, we have times of praise. These are songs to help us praise God. Then we have times of adoration. These are the more contemplative songs. They're more theological. They're more meditative. We do this as a community of Christians. Some of you hear songs on Christian radio and, and you think all those songs are meant for the worship service. They're not all meant for the worship service. Some of them are more concert type songs. Uh, um, and they're not singable for a congregation. Some of them aren't even worship songs. More, they're songs about Jesus, and that's great, but they're not really about worshiping Jesus. They're good. There's nothing wrong with that. But go look up Skillet. I wouldn't play their music in a worship service. Nothing wrong with their music. It's Christian music. It's great music. But I wouldn't play it for it's some of the few really heavy rock Christian music that I like. Uh, but it's not necessarily for a worship service. In a worship service, you also have, you, you have songs of praise. We're praising the Lord. And then some of those might be more upbeat. And then you come down to times of adoration, contemplative songs. And it's usually worshiping God, which is ascribing God his worthiness. It's shouting out, he is worthy. Actually, the word worship goes back in English to the word worth, worthship. God is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Out of their discipleship and worship, they saw signs and wonders, and there was a sense of awe. And this happened in fellowship. And then we have ministry. 
So we've talked about worship. We've talked about fellowship through this whole message. Now we see ministry. Um, They're sacrificing for one another. They're sharing with one another. How are we doing with sacrifice? Are we sacrificing for the body of Christ? Are we sacrificing our money and our lifestyle for others? I believe the biblical principle of giving in the New Testament, and you can see this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the biblical principle of giving is you give until it hurts. You give until it messes with your lifestyle a little bit. And not just Bethel, friends, but the church across the United States is supported by very, very, very few people. In fact, you know what? If you look at the studies, churches in more impoverished areas have more higher percentage of giving than those in more affluent areas. The people with less wealth give more than those with more wealth. Isn't that very interesting? But the biblical principle of giving is we give, we sacrifice for one another. I believe God has great plans for Bethel friends and, and, and he would have us do so much more, but we can't because of complacency. We can't because people don't really wanna serve. A perfect example, which I don't think I mentioned in a worship service, but I will right now, was last year's Mother's Day event. You know, like you can talk about like there were five and there was four and there was three. There were like three men helpers at that event. And by the end, there was, there was two, me and Rollin. How shameful. Men wouldn't step up to help, to serve. There are some things we do help out with, but you know, God is calling us to do so much more, but it does take sacrifice and sacrifice of time, of talents, of energy, ministry. This church, this early church, they were sacrificing for one another. They were sacrificing for the greater needs. And let me just add, I really think throughout 2020 and the whole COVID pandemic and since then, there's been less willingness to serve. There's been more complacency. There's more of a level of depression. Timothy Keller, who's with the Lord now, pastored and started Redeemer Church in Manhattan, a great, 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 great church with great ministries and great writings. And right after September 11th, obviously they were right there in Manhattan. You know, they lived through the September 11th in Manhattan. And during the COVID time, he was being interviewed and he said, get ready for about five years of depression. Not necessarily clinical depression, but just a, a general, a general malaise maybe, a general low-key light depression. He said that's what they experienced after 9-11 in New York City. It took time for that to wear off. Sometimes that makes us isolate more, not sacrifice more. It makes us stray from church more, but that's the opposite of what we need to do. We need to be with our church family. We need fellowship. We need to be together, and we need to serve We need to serve. I used to think it was great that our Sunday school numbers at Bethel are so good, so high. And they are high compared to most churches, but it's not always that great because some come to Sunday school, but they don't serve in any other way. Some have and they, they can't. They have physical limitations. Now, I'm not talking about them. Some could, they could serve more. We're all called to serve in the church as well. Ministry. So we see these five purposes of the church right here. Evangelism discipleship, worship, ministry, and it all happened around fellowship. Fellowship. We must be a support to each other in our trials, in our struggles, and our joys. In fellowship, they had a sense of awe, which is godly fear, verse 43. They experienced miracles and wonders. 
A miracle would be regarded as something startling, imposing, amazing, often used elsewhere for a strange appearance in the heavens. And there were signs. The word refers to miracles with a different end and for a purpose. God was giving these miracles and signs and things that were happening, bringing people to the gospel, bringing people to salvation. Fellowship includes accountability. Proverbs 27, 17 is iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. By the way, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And oftentimes that thinks we never upset the fruit basket, so to speak. We never upset the norm. We never speak out. That's really not what Jesus meant by peacemakers. I just did some reading on that and listened to a sermon on that this past week, which was a reminder. You know, Jesus really upset things many times. Sometimes God is calling us in being a peacemaker to speak out, to speak truth and love. But at the same time, being a peacemaker also means we have, we, we have real discernment uh, in a way to um, quiet uh, tension, to, uh, to try to do it in a gentle, loving way, which we're gonna come back to in just a moment. So fellowship does include accountability. Sometimes it means we have to speak out in truth. A fellowship includes building each other up as a group. Ecclesiastes 4.13, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's a wisdom principle that we are stronger together when we are together. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 and 25 says, do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, but to continue, but continue to meet together to what? To spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Love includes bearing each other's burdens, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. It, it, it includes if one rejoices, we all rejoice. So fellowship, we bear each other's burdens, we rejoice together, we suffer together. How can we live the Christian life in community? And I feel compelled and convicted right now to challenge some of you. You're not in community. You're here on Sundays and you're faithful on Sundays. But that's all. I think God would have you get more involved. That's not church involvement from a historical Christian standard. And what I've seen in the church, not just Bethel, but all churches, is the closer you are with the community group, the closer of support you're gonna get in any trial or trouble. Case in point, there's a book called It Could Happen Here. It's about a Methodist pastor at a two-point charge. A two-point charge means they take a Methodist uh, and they'll make them pastor two churches and sometimes four churches and sometimes even five churches. Sometimes they have five-point charges. So a Methodist pastor is pastoring two churches of about 40 people each. Now, those churches grew to a combination of about 250 people. And so he's pastoring two churches, a combination of about 250 people. And while he's pastoring those churches, he started a small group ministry, small group, something we hope to start here. Some of our Sunday school classes, or maybe even all of them, are more like small groups. He was out of town and a tragedy happened. Somebody lost a, I don't, I forget whether it's a, a husband or a sibling or, or, or something, very, someone close to them. He was out of town. He couldn't, he couldn't really provide help and care. And this is the 80s. I don't even know if he had a cell phone. You know, they were very rare then. But the small group met the needs, helped support that woman better than he as a pastor ever could because of fellowship, because they were close together. It's so, so, so important. Notice evangelism in this passage. Evangelism was an outflow of their discipleship, of their worship, of their ministry and fellowship. Verse 47 says that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The stronger a fellowship is, fellowship centered around, hanging out together, like in that example of the family in Little House in the Big Woods that I read, hanging out together, but also fellowship centered around the Bible, 
the word of God, in worship, in communion, in baptisms, and things like that. The stronger our fellowship is, I think the stronger our growth will be. Fellowship, what helps it? What hurts it? What even is fellowship? I read the following a few weeks ago. I've asked the Lord to take from me my super sensitivity that robs a soul of joy and peace and causes fellowship to cease. I believe biblical fellowship is centered around the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not simply hanging out at a bar, so to speak, though eating and drinking can be involved. It's not simply watching a football game together, though that could be involved. It's centered around the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Back in 2011, I was preparing to transition from living in Cincinnati to Alliance, Ohio, and I was an associate pastor handling youth and children's ministries and Christian education and a few other things at a church in Cincinnati. And I had a student leader that was interested in attending Cedarville University, where I went to college. And we drove up, me and the student leader, on a certain Monday. And to hear Dr. Brown, who was the president of Cedarville and Chapel. Dr. Brown was the president from 2003 to 2013. Now he works with the Colson Center's Fellows Program. And I loved his chapel messages. He always had this encouraging, paternal, humble, loving attitude. And I want to read something because that message, he, he said that he kept three things in his Bible. And I heard him say it that day, even though I'd long since graduated, I heard him say it that day. And I stuck in my Bible and have since lost it because I've switched Bibles a number of times and things like that. And so last Tuesday, I did, did some digging on their website and found, and found the message that he gave that day and listen to it. And just the first five minutes were so profound and it applies to you and me. And it applies more to our society now than it did even in 2011. I wanna read some of what he said at the beginning of the message. He said, we Christians are the best at being critical and cynical. We have not learned how to confront, debate and build rather than tear down. Now that is an art, by the way. We can confront, debate even in a loving, gentle way. It takes real discernment. He continues, he says, we as Christians are to build over and over again that is stated in the Bible. It is so easy to find things to be critical about and, and be cynical about. He gave himself as an example. He said he had trouble being critical. He said he was clever, being critical of himself, his wife, and his life. He said there are so many things to be critical about, to be cynical about. Your spouse, the church, the United States. Dr. Brown said he determined enough people were doing that. So he did not want to do that anymore. He put a card in his Bible that he looks at every morning. He reads the card. It says three things. Grace towards everyone. God has given us grace. God has shown grace towards me and I want to show that to everyone else. Grace means unmerited favor, unearned favor. God has given us grace. Can we show that to others? Get rid of the hypercriticalness, the hypercynicalness, and show grace towards everyone. Second thing that he put in his Bible, faith towards God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Third thing, biblical wisdom towards everything. 
God gave us his word for a reason and we go back there. In other words, we look at every situation in the culture and in the climate, in the movies, in the TV, in the news, and we apply biblical wisdom to that. Just like I was teaching on the Friends Club on Wednesday night, and one of the boys talked about kind of a bully situation at school and how they were yelling at each other, saying different things and things like that. And what do we do? We need to apply biblical wisdom to that. What's God's word say to do when there are bullies involved and and things happen? God's word has a lot to say about everything. Apply biblical wisdom. Grace towards everyone. Faith towards God. Biblical wisdom towards everything. Dr. Brown shared that he must reboot his thinking every day. I love this. He said, the gravity of his depravity will always pull him down. I think that's the case for me. It's probably the case for most of us. The gravity of our depravity and the depravity of our world will always pull, always pull us down. We have to reboot our thinking. He said, I love this. There are enough people tearing down and he will let them fulfill that spiritual gift. <laughs> the tendency towards negativity is seen most in how they treat other people. Look, we're talking about fellowship here. It takes real fellowship to be united. And I think those three things, we'd all be better if we could do the same thing. Apply grace towards everyone. Unmerited, unearned favor. Get rid of the hypercritical nature. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says to do all things without grumbling and complaining. Then you can shine like light. It's kind of like saying, when we are grumbling and complaining, we don't shine. We bring everyone else down. And I hear grumbling and complaining, it's demoralizing. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says to consider others more important than yourselves. Look out for the needs of others before your own. How can we be others-focused? How can we apply grace towards everyone, faith towards God, biblical wisdom towards everything? There's so much more to be said about that, but we'll stop at that. I wanna invite the altar prayer workers to come forward as I close this service in prayer and we go to a contemplative Song. We're going to play at least the beginning of Oh, Praise the Name. And at the end of Oh, Praise the Name, the worship team's going to come up and lead us in the closing song. During Oh, Praise the Name, the altars are open. And if God has said anything on your heart and you would like to come forward in prayer, we would love to pray with you. It's a joy and it's a pleasure to pray with you. We're called to pray for one another, to support one another, to support each other. And, and, and let us do that. You know, I want to say one more thing about that. I meet with many people in hospitals and they'll say, I don't want anybody to have to help me. I want to be self-supportive. But you know, when we do that, we're robbing someone of their blessing. And some of us might think, I don't want others to have to pray for me. I'm okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. When you do that, you rob us of our blessing. It's a blessing to pray for one another. It's a blessing to support one another. It's a blessing to encourage one another. It's a blessing now. It's also a blessing in eternity in heaven. Let us pray for you. Let's pray with you. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as a body of Christ, being united, being united in fellowship. And Lord, as I'm convicted to pray pretty much daily, I pray for the body of Christ now. Help us all, applying grace towards everyone, faith towards you, and biblical wisdom towards everything. Lord God, I ask that the Holy Spirit would apply this message to your people right now. James chapter five says to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Lord God, some might need to repent. And if that's the case, I pray that you would convict us and we would respond. Repenting to you and any that we sin against. 
Lord God, I pray that others would be encouraged in many other ways. I pray we'd all be encouraged. Repenting of sin is an encouragement because 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your unmerited, unearned gift of salvation and life everlasting in the fullness of life that you give us right now through our faith in you and the Holy Spirit within us. Help us as a body of Christ being united in fellowship. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Billy, go and start this song and we'd love to pray with you. The altars are open.